and you may be seated. This morning, we're going to be working toward uh, working through Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. So let me encourage you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter here in just a moment. Uh, but last week, we saw how Paul explained uh, the importance of joy in the life of a Christian and how it's a safeguard. We saw that in verse number 1. Uh, this week, we're going to see how Paul tells us to watch out for a certain type of false teacher and a certain type of false teaching. And he describes for us, as he contrasts uh, true belief with a false teacher, he describes for us the marks of a true believer. This is one of the many ways Paul, throughout the book of Philippians, works towards and helps us understand where to find our true joy. If true joy is found in Christ, then any false teaching that leads us away from Christ is an enemy of joy. And so as Paul begins unpacking chapter number three, the theme of chapter three, we said this last week, is knowing Christ and how there's nothing better in life than to pursue knowing him. So what Paul is doing here as he's starting out this chapter is he's laying a very important foundation for us. If you're going to know Christ and find true joy in Christ, you need to be in Christ. And you need to make sure that the teaching you believe and say is helps you to know that you're in Christ and help others know that they are in Christ. So Paul is laying this very important foundation for us here in these verses. So let's do this. Let's read all of chapter number three to start us off, and then we will jump into our study this morning. Philippians chapter number three. The Bible says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. Verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, he says, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way, 
And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters. Pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. For God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They have focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Let's pray, and then we will jump into our study this morning. Like we did last week, I'd like to encourage uh, us, according to what Paul encouraged Timothy, encourages all the men to lift their hands in prayer. So if you're comfortable, I would encourage you to lift your hands in prayer with me as I pray for this morning's message. Holy Spirit, I pray that your spirit, that you, would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, this isn't a performance. I'm not up here to try to get people to say, wow, what a great message. Lord, my goal is simply to say, this is what the word of God says. To herald, thus saith the Lord. And I pray that your spirit would anoint your preached word. And I pray as your spirit takes your word this morning and works in our hearts and in our lives, that it would be good news to those who need good news. Lord, to those who are here this morning who are lost in their sin, I pray that your word would be good news unto salvation for them. I pray that your word would heal the brokenhearted that it would be liberty to those that are captive, still in bondage to sin and need to be saved. Or, Lord, maybe our brothers and sisters who are still in bondage to a besetting sin, Lord, I pray that your word this morning would set them free, that it would be liberty to those that are captive, freedom to the prisoners. Lord, I pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, we would be like trees planted by rivers, planted in your righteousness, God, that exist to bring you honor and glory. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. So Paul is addressing a false theology, and he's addressing those who are teaching it. In verse number two, he tells us to watch out three times. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. And what we see between verses two and verses number three is a contrast. He says at the end of verse number two, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. Some translations will actually render that phrase the true circumcision. The word for at the beginning of verse 3 tells us that verse 3 informs what Paul said in verse number 2. So as we read this and we wonder, man, what does it mean those who mutilate the flesh? What is he talking about? Well, the way he describes us as believers in verse number 3 tells us. These false teachers were Judaizers who wanted to accept Jesus as Messiah, but they also wanted to add the works of the law as necessary for salvation. They taught that Gentile believers needed to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order to really be a Christian. This is what he means when he says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. We see these teachers come on the scene in Acts chapter 15, Acts 15.1. The Bible says, some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. And in Acts 15, we have the council at Jerusalem where the early church confronts this false teaching 
But even though the early church confronted this false teaching, it was still seeping around throughout the early church. Now, when Paul calls these people dogs, that seems like a pretty big insult. And so what Paul is doing here is he's taking these Judaizers and he's actually flipping their pride on top of their head. He's saying, you guys are actually the ones that are dogs. And by calling these false teachers dogs, he's helping this church to understand the danger of what they're teaching. He's not just being mean to be mean. He's calling them out. He's saying, these people are dangerous. They're dogs. We've got to watch out for what they're doing because they are preaching a false gospel. It is dangerous. It will hinder your joy. It will keep you from knowing Christ. Any teaching or any person that makes one depend on their own works for salvation and not on the finished work of Christ is an enemy of our joy and is an enemy of our faith, and they're preaching a false gospel. Paul is taking the same source of their pride, their adherence to the law, and he's using their source of pride to show them this is a false gospel. You're not truly saved. Any type of teaching that leads to us thinking we can attain our own salvation is false. Now, whether this is through intense works like we see here, or is what we'll see oftentimes, even in, even in the evangelical church, is this type of teaching that says, you're good enough as you are, you don't really need to be changed, it's the same thing. Now, it looks different, wildly different on the outside, but ultimately it's the same thing. The idea is that you can save yourself. These days we have both. You can drive up and down Fresno and see religion after religion that'll tell you you've got to earn your salvation. And we also have teachers after teachers that'll tell us you're good enough all on your own to be saved. You're good enough just as you are. You don't really need to be changed in order to be saved. Both are wrong. We don't have what it takes to be saved. This is why we need a Savior. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul addresses both of these. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you previously walked according to in the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, even as others. No intrinsic goodness there. <laughs> No, I'm good enough. I can be saved all on my own there. Paul goes on. But God, who is rich in his mercy because of his great love that he loved us, made us alive with Christ. You're not good enough on your own. You need to be changed. You need to be made alive. Paul is saying you are dead, and because God is rich in his mercy and his great love that he has for us, he made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable, uh, immeasurable, that is a wrong word there, the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. There's no intrinsic goodness in us that can just make us be saved, make us know Christ, make us have a relationship with God. And there's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's no amount of good works we could do to earn our salvation. There's no earning, no intrinsic goodness, just 100% the grace and mercy of God. And so Paul warns the Philippian church about these teachers who would try to get into their faith community and spread this false teaching. And he says, watch out. Be vigilant. This is especially important these days. 
I mean, in the New Testament, you had these false teachers who would travel from city to city. They were like false teacher missionaries. <laughs> and they would try to get into these churches and, and corrupt them with their false teaching. Nowadays, it's not that hard because our social media fields could potentially be full of them. And so the admonition of Paul to us is to be careful. Pay attention to what people are saying. Search the scriptures to know if what people are saying are true. Search the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is true. In the book of Acts, we see there's a group of people called the Bereans, and the scripture tells us that they were noble because they took the teaching that they were given, and then they went and searched the scriptures to see if those things were true. Know your Bible so that you can readily identify false teaching because false teaching is the enemy of our joy. False teaching hinders us from knowing Christ and who Scripture reveals him to be towards us. Paul then compares these false teachers to those who are truly saved. Look at verse number three. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in our flesh. Now, the way he starts verse number three is a little bit interesting, and it might cause us some question. If following the ceremonial law of circumcision wasn't what saved a person, why does Paul tell us at the beginning of verse 3 that we are the circumcision? Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Israel. It was a ritual that indicated what was supposed to happen in a person's heart. They loved and feared God. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter number 10, verses 16 through 21, where God actually tells them, therefore, circumcise your hearts. And don't be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien, since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. And you are to fear the Lord your God and worship him. This is what it means to be circumcised of heart. Remain faithful to him and take oaths in his name. He is your praise and he is your God. Who has done for you these great and awe-inspiring works your eyes have seen? In the book of Colossians, Paul further establishes that a person is not one of God's people because of their outward action, but because of a changed heart, a heart that's changed by the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. And you have been filled by him, who is ahead over every ruler and authority. You were also circumcised with, in him with a circumcision not done with hands by the putting off of the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it by nailing it to the cross. So Paul says true circumcision is faith in Christ. He says this again in Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew, a person is not part of the people of God who is one outwardly. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So when Paul says that we are of the circumcision, he's not referring to an Old Testament ritual. He is saying that we have had our hearts changed by the Holy Spirit of God. We have been made a new 
creation in Christ. And as a person who has been inwardly changed, Paul says there are several identifiers in their life. We see this by the fact that Paul says at the beginning of verse 3, for we are. This is who we are as God's people. And because this is who we are, this is what we do. This is who we are. Look at verse number 3 again. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and don't put any confidence in the flesh. So what are the three marks of a true believer, of the people of God? Well, the first one is we worship by the Spirit. Worship here is not simply referring to what we do at a worship service on a Sunday. We have to be careful that we as Christians don't think, well, what I do on Sunday for an hour, an hour and a half is my worship, and then the rest of my life is whatever. Worship is the way we as believers live our lives. It's not just what we do on Sunday. It's everything that we do to the glory of the Father. Now, this word worship here in verse 3 oftentimes gets translated as serve. This tells us that worshiping by the Spirit means we live a life that's devoted to serving Jesus. This is who we are as Christians. As people of God, we live our life devoted to serving Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And only a person who has had their heart changed by the Spirit of God can worship or serve in the Spirit of God. This is who we are as God's people. True worship is generated by the Spirit. This isn't restricted to our service. This is our lifestyle as God's people. This is the lifestyle of everyone who the Holy Spirit has regenerated. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't often struggle. This doesn't mean that we somehow attain sinless perfection the moment the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. This doesn't discount the often slow work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts over the course of our lives. But what it does mean is that as a true believer, we have a Holy Spirit-given desire to live for Jesus to the glory of the Father. A Christian's life is meant to be an expression of spirit-driven worship. This is who we are as God's people. Our life is meant to be an expression of spirit-driven worship, spirit-driven service, driven by the Holy Spirit. But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Living life as worship to God is the natural impulse of a person indwelled by the Spirit. We see this in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Some translations will say reasonable service. So not only does this mean it makes logical sense to live my life as worship because of all that Christ has done for me, it does make logical sense, that's part of it, but it also tells us that it's the byproduct of being a Christian. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, as we surrender to his work in our lives, as we recognize I am a child of God and I have his spirit living in me, and as I surrender to that and as I live in light of that, the Holy Spirit produces this type of a lifestyle in me. Now I don't want to be misunderstood. We don't live this way to be saved. That's exactly the type of false teaching Paul is dismantling here. We don't live this way to be saved. We live this way because we are saved. This is who we are in Christ. And so when Paul says, we are the circumcisions, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, he's saying, this is who we are as believers in Christ. Next, yes, we worship in spirit, Paul says. That is part of who we are. But he also says, we boast in Christ Jesus. 
those who are truly people of God, glory in Christ Jesus. This is because, as we saw last week, the work of the Holy Spirit is to exalt Jesus. John 16, 14, he will glorify me because he will take from what is mine, Jesus said, and declare it unto you. So what the Holy Spirit does in our lives is he glorifies Jesus. Now this word boast here in verse 3 often gets translated as glory or as rejoice. It means you glory in or you rejoice in something. This shows us that a person who is truly saved treasures Jesus. As Christians, we have to step back and say, Jesus is my highest treasure. And when we sing about him, when we come together to worship on Sunday, that is an expression of that. That is how we remind ourselves of that. That is a picture of heaven for what we're going to do for all of eternity. But again, this is our lifestyle. In every aspect of our lives, we treasure Jesus. Paul says this in Galatians 6, 14 and 15. He says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Paul says, I'm dead to it. It doesn't mean anything to me anymore. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. Paul told the Galatians, I glory in the cross of Jesus because that's what saved me. It's not our outward adherence to this ritual. It's not about outward conformity. What matters is I surrendered to Jesus and he has made me a new creation in Christ. And because Christ has made me a new creation, I treasure him above all else. That old ritual couldn't save me. We're going to see in a minute, Paul lists all his credentials, all these things that a religious person would think, man, Paul would be good. And he says, no, none of that means anything to me because it didn't save me. And because Jesus is the one who saved me, I boast in Jesus. I glory in Jesus. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, so that no one could boast. A true believer recognizes that they have no room to boast or be proud that they are Christians. I can't brag to you I'm a Christian. Look at me. Because we're all dead and trespasses and sin. I brought nothing to the table when I became a Christian. <laughs> I brought my sin. I brought my deadness. And Jesus in his love and his mercy made me alive. On our own, we can only stand guilty before God. But Christ saved us. He has given us his free gift of salvation. That's why Paul said, I boast in Jesus. I glory in Jesus. All the trappings of the world, all the accolades, it's all nothing. Even this religious ritual, Paul says, it's nothing. That's not what saved us. What matters is I am a new creation in Christ. The Christian life is a Christ-exalting, Christ-enjoying life. Christ is the source of our eternal life, and from, from him flows the source of all of our satisfaction. So we boast in him. We recognize that we have no grand to stand on apart from Christ, but in him we have everything. So he is our everything. We glory in him. We boast in him. We rejoice in him. We treasure Jesus above everything. Jesus is the Christian's greatest treasure. And as people of God, Paul says, we are the people who don't boast in anything. We boast in Christ Jesus. That is who we are. We worship in the spirit. We boast in Jesus. Then lastly, Paul says, we don't put confidence in our flesh. The last of the three marks of a true believer Paul gives in this text is that we don't put confidence in ourselves. Now, in chapter three, when Paul uses the word flesh, 
we could define it as any human work or achievement without dependence on the Holy Spirit done for the glory of Christ. This is anything we do when we're trusting ourselves. Any work, any achievement that is not totally and utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit is how Paul is defining flesh here in this passage. And again, in this direct context, he's talking about our salvation because he is addressing a false gospel. And so we cannot become justified in the sight of God. We cannot begin our relationship in the flesh. We don't bring anything to the table. We don't put confidence in ourselves that we're good enough in order to be saved. This also highlights for us as believers how unnatural for a true believer it is to depend on our flesh. Any work or achievement without dependence on the Holy Spirit done for the glory of Christ, that's an unnatural way for a Christian to live. Paul addresses this again in Galatians. Are you so foolish? After beginning in the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? So yes, at the moment of our salvation, there's nothing there that we could put our confidence in. We don't put our confidence in ourselves to know Christ. We don't put our confidence in ourselves to grow in Christ. No part of our salvation, from our justification all the way to our glorification, is dependent on our flesh. We didn't do this in our own strength. We, don't, we, we do depend on the Holy Spirit, because that is who we are as his people. We are a people who don't put any confidence in our flesh and any work or achievement apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Now to highlight this, in verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul uses himself as an example. Paul is helping us understand that even a person with as impressive of a resume as his cannot depend on their own flesh. It's almost like Paul is telling these false teachers and he's telling the church at Philippi, oh, you think you guys have good reason to depend on yourselves? Check me out. None of this is going to save you. It doesn't matter how great you are or impressive you are. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6 again. He says, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for the confidence of the flesh, I've got more. Paul's like, dude, I've got you beat. This isn't me just saying, well, we don't have any confidence in the flesh because I'm not an impressive person. It'd be one thing if Paul was like, we have no confidence in the flesh. And everybody's like, yeah, but Paul, you're kind of a loser, so that doesn't really mean anything. Paul's like, that ain't what hap- that's not what's happening here. He says, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that's in the law, blameless. Paul is listing his credentials to demonstrate the emptiness of putting confidence in yourself. He's like, it's all, it all amounts to nothing. None of this can save you. None of this is how you know Christ. And so let's unpack what he's saying in each one of these. At the, at the beginning of this, he says he was circumcised the eighth day. This tells us that his parents followed the law to the letter. From the very beginning of his life, Paul had been crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. He had been following the ritual. I would say from day one, but according to the Levitical law, it was day eight. <laughs> now, What's really significant about Paul bringing this out is this shows us that Paul wasn't a proselyte. He didn't convert later in his life. He is demonstrating that he has been an insider from his birth. He's like, guys, I've been doing this since I was born. And I don't put any confidence in it. You may be listening to this message this morning and you may be thinking that you can have a relationship with Jesus maybe because you were baptized as a baby. Or maybe your parents took you to Sunday school every week. 
or maybe you were confirmed as a child in a Catholic church, friend, those rituals will not save you. Paul says, I did all the rituals my entire life, and I have no confidence in them. That is not what allows me to know Christ. That's not what allows me to experience authentic joy. Next, he says, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. What Paul is showing us here is he's like, I'm not trusting in my ethnicity. I'm not trusting in the fact that I was born in the nation of Israel to know that I have a relationship with God. He says of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was a very respected tribe in Israel. Benjamin was the only son out of the 12 patriarchs that was born in the promised land in Genesis 35, we see that. Jerusalem, the holy city, was in the tribe of Benjamin's land allotment. Israel's first king was from a tribe of Benjamin. That's who Paul was originally named after, Saul, 2 Samuel 1.9. So the tribe of Benjamin was a noble tribe. When the kingdom split, it was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty, 1 Kings 12.21. I mean, the tribe of Benjamin was a big deal. They were a small tribe, but they were a proud tribe. They were a noble tribe. Paul goes on to say, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Many people believe this tells us Paul did not abandon his Hebrew culture. Uh, many Jews in the New Testament were what we would consider Hellenistic Jews. We see them in Acts chapter number 6. They were called Hellenistic Jews because they adopted the Greek language and the Greek culture and they abandoned their Hebrew heritage. But Paul's like, I didn't do that. I stay true to my culture, cultural heritage. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What Paul is helping us understand is that he had a proud and privileged heritage. But Paul said, that's no reason to be confident that I know Jesus. Our physical heritage isn't what gets us a ticket into heaven, guys. When we stand before the great white throne judgment, God is not going to be like, oh, you're born in America, you're good. Oh, you were raised in church, so yeah, come on in. Your parents were Christians, your grandparents were Christians, you're good, come on in. If God has allowed you to have a good heritage, be thankful for that. But Paul says we put zero confidence in that. And we can be thankful for it. We can rejoice in it while putting zero confidence in it. Like we're going to see later in chapter 3, we're citizens of a different kingdom, of a better kingdom. So Paul says we don't put our confidence in our heritage. He goes on to say, regarding a law, a Pharisee. Paul had the highest standard, and he was committed to it. Now, Phariseeism was a movement that began when the Jews returned from exile and it was solidified during the Maccabean times. That was the time period between the Old and the New Testament. And that was when uh, the group of the Pharisees really became solidified. And by the time Paul is writing in the first century, they were some of the most impressive and respected people in Israel. We look at the Pharisees and we're like, yeah, you guys are the bad guys. We kind of know that. But in the New Testament, they were respected. They were revered because they were impressive. They were committed. They were the people who were radical about their faith and following God, and they were committed. They were an impressive bunch, and Paul, being a Pharisee, would have been a matter of deep conviction for him. Paul's helping us understand, look, I was no slouch when it came to morality. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. I was as moral as moral can be. But again, that's not what we put confidence in. Scripture tells us that nobody's good enough. Nobody's moral enough to earn a relationship with Jesus. 
No amount of moral living would ever be enough for you to have confidence in that you know Christ. Oh, I'm good enough. I'll be moral enough. My good will outweigh my bad. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. We don't put confidence in that. No amount of moral living will ever earn you a relationship with God. Paul actually addresses this specifically with Jews in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. He says, what then? Are we any better off? Not at all. He says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. In John chapter 3, Jesus speaks specifically with a Pharisee. And he tells this moral, this religious leader, this impressive man, that you've got to be born of the Spirit. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we, we know your teacher has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you do unless God were with them. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, regeneration, salvation, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For whatever is born of flesh is flesh. And like Paul's saying, we don't put confidence in our flesh. And whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Paul is helping us understand our flesh cannot save us. It doesn't matter how good or moral you may appear to be or a person may appear to be. Paul says we don't put a confidence in that. Our confidence is in Jesus. Next, he says regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Now, this one strikes us a bit differently because we know Paul was wrong for persecuting the church. How, why, why would Paul list this among his credentials? Obviously, this was sin. We, we know violence is never the answer when it comes to spreading our faith. Religious violence is wrong. Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6.12. Jesus himself said in John 18.36, uh, My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight <laughs> so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus is telling us we don't pick up arms and physically fight to advance the kingdom of God. That type of violence is never the answer when it comes to spreading our faith. And I feel like this should go without saying, but the last few years there's been a string of violence that's often done under the guise of Christianity, and I just want to say it's flat out wrong. There's no crusade, there's no jihad. Our kingdom is not of this world. So we don't do physical violence. The point Paul is making here is that he was so passionate about what he believed that he was willing to go to extreme lengths sinful links, links we can look at and obviously see that's wrong. Passion or zeal or the sincerity that often drives passion and, and zeal don't give us reason to be confident that we know Christ. Oftentimes you hear, yeah, but he's so sincere. He's so passionate. How could he be wrong? Passion and zeal are not the same as being saved by Jesus. You can be passionate, and you can be sincere, and you can be wrong. If you need an example of that, I'll introduce you to my children. <laughs> Lots of examples there. Paul says, regarding zeal, personally, the there was nobody more zealous than I was, Paul said. You Judaizers, you think you're coming in here, and you're helping these people, but no, you're wrong. And then lastly, he says, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Blameless. 
basically Paul's like, I was really successful at being religious. I was really successful at being righteous. I was blameless. You couldn't hold a candle to me. There was nothing about my life where you could look at it and say, yeah, well, I don't think over here it's not really adding up. Paul's like, no, I had it nailed. I was blameless. I was successful. Religious success, though, does not equal the Holy Spirit working. Boy, have we seen that in our society. Religious success was no reason to put confidence in his flesh. So few, if any of us, could ever claim to be as impressive as Paul was. I couldn't. (laughs) But even if we could, Paul's helping us understand it wouldn't matter. Not even all of this, Paul says, can save you. Not even all of this is reason to have confidence in your flesh. And so the question I want to propose to us is, what are you putting your confidence in? What are you depending on to know Christ? The fact that you've been a Christian all your life? Christian all your life? Well, I've grown up in church, so certainly I'm okay. Are you putting your confidence in, well, I was baptized as a baby, so I think. Or maybe, but I'm a good enough person. I help charity. I try to do more wrong than right. I gave a dollar to the homeless guy when I saw him. I'm pretty sure my good will outweigh my bad. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Living a good and moral life will not save you. Living a religious life will not save you. And don't get me wrong, it's good to live a moral life. It's good to live a religious life. But that's not what we put our confidence in to save us. The fact that you've been attending church your entire life isn't a reason to have confidence that you know Christ. Now, my goal is not to make anyone here doubt your salvation this morning. But I also don't want to make an unsafe person feel comfortable when they shouldn't. Friend, what are you depending on? Paul goes on in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. He's saying God shows us what it means, how how we can be good enough. The righteousness of God has been revealed, revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. What he means there is the Old Testament showed us this. The Old Testament pointed to this. This was revealed in the Old Testament, and now we're seeing it. He says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Since there's no distinction, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter if you have a good heritage or a bad heritage. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you come from. Paul's like, there's no distinction. Every single one of us is guilty before God. And the only way to experience the righteousness of God is by faith in Jesus, to believe in him. I quote this verse all the time. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. Romans 10, 13, or 11 through 13 says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him, everyone. You may say, okay, you're you're telling us we can't put confidence in all these things. I'm on the other end of the extreme. (laughs) Like, you don't know what I've done. The Bible says everyone. Everyone who believes on him will will not be put to shame. Since there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, Paul's really helping us understand 
It does not matter your background. It does not matter what you bring to the table. We're all guilty, but whoever believes in Jesus will be saved because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, let me encourage you. If you're here today and you're like, man, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know Christ. Don't put your confidence in your flesh, please. Please. Simply believe in Jesus. Part of coming to Christ, part of believing in Jesus is recognizing I can't save myself. Calling on the name of the Lord is on him and him alone for salvation. It's recognizing I've got nothing to bring to this table here. I am in desperate, desperate need of a Savior. Scripture tells us that all who believe are given the righteousness of God. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, believe in him today. You say, I've got questions. I need help. Ask any one of us. We would love to answer those questions. If you say, I need time to process. I need time to think. I've got a lot of questions. Let us walk through those questions with you. Don't just go on your own and try to figure it all out. Let us show you from God's word the answers to those questions so that you can believe in Jesus. You can be freely justified by his grace. You can experience the marks of a true believer. Put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our church would be not just hearers but doers of the word. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray that their doing today would not be trying to earn, but that their doing would be, I'm going to stop trying to earn, and I'm going to believe in Jesus. Lord, I pray that today would be the day they place their faith and trust in Christ, whether that's after the service, whether that's at the park, Lord, wherever that is. Lord, if there's people here and they, they're, they're still wrestling, they're still trying to figure this out, they're still trying to work through things, I pray that they would allow us to come alongside them and walk through that with them. Lord, if there's anybody here today that has grown up in church or has been attending even Fresno Church for years and years and years, Lord, but they're not depending on you for their salvation, they're depending on the fact that they've been here for a while. Holy Spirit, please reveal that to them. How sad it would be to stand before you one day and say, but I went to church my whole life. And have it amount to nothing. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict that your spirit would reveal. And Lord, I pray for those of us here who are believers, who have placed our faith and trust in you. We know that we know that we know you. Lord, I pray that these marks would just continue to grow in our life, that we would recognize all of my life is worship in the spirit. All of my life is to be done in dependence on the spirit. There's nothing in myself that I can boast on, but I will treasure Jesus above everything. May that be who we as a Fresno church and we who through your church in Fresno and around the world are as people. We ask this in your name.